This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Manjunath, and um, I will be talking about computer vision and deep learning and why it's a great time to be working on problems relating to these topics uh, right now. So I'm with Electrical and Computer Engineering Department, and I also direct the Center for Multimodal Big Data Science and Healthcare and the Center for Bioimage Informatics. So why vision? Why computer vision? Images and videos are pretty much everywhere. Uh, if you look at the amount of data that's being constantly generated around the world, if you just look at the, the World Wide Web, right? Over 90% of the data, volume-wise, is uh, coming from images and, and videos. And there are a significant number of opportunities, wide range of applications, as uh, indicated in many of the boxes over here, uh, that, um, that are out there. And also, in addition to those applications, uh, there are very many fundamental problems in terms of understanding how the human vision actually works. And, and also in developing robust artificial vision systems for various applications. <clears throat> so in terms of the applications here, I have listed a number of them. So let's start with something that we uh, had some recent work on, which is uh, detecting stress. So this was the work of one of my PhD students, uh, Satish Kumar, in collaboration with uh, faculty members in uh, uh, psychology and brain sciences, specifically uh, Scott Grafton and uh, his collaborators over there. And the goal here, the objective here, is to be able to have a non-invasive method to um, detect and score stress uh, using thermal video. So the setup is something like this, uh, where the subject is um, uh, sitting down. And um, uh, essentially, you can probably see the, the bucket over here, uh, which is the stress inducer. And what you are measuring are various uh, uh, signals coming from ECG and so on. And the, the experimental setup itself consists of a, uh, a bucket here with some water. It could be ice cold or warm water. The subject obviously does not know that. And the stress is induced by immersing the, the feet inside the water. Okay, so, so that's, that's the basic setup. And in between the experiments, the subject is asked to carry out certain uh, cognitive tasks. So that's the, the, the overall uh, setup, experimental setup, and what we are observing in addition to the the sensor outputs are the uh, the thermal videos that are captured from a, a standard thermal camera. Okay, and the goal here is to come up with some kind of a uh, a learning machine learning model that takes in these videos and uses what's known as the um, the ISTI and 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 related data sets to uh, to measure the um, the stress level, so that's the output. So, so essentially, that ISTI, what you see here, is called is is the initial systolic time interval, which is one of the signals that are uh, that's used in terms of measuring the the level of stress. So, what we would like to do is that going from the thermal sequence here, come up with some kind of a, a signal waveform like that plus an associated stress score. So, that's the the resulting desired output. And what we have done in this context here is that uh, essentially our experiments show that we are able to, based upon the data sets we have and the machine learning algorithms that, uh, um, that we developed, 
we are able to reproduce this ISTI curves fairly accurately. So in this case, you have two uh, different graphs, one of them under no stress. So no stress means that the subject is inserting, immersing the feet in, in uh, uh, warm water, so there's really not much of a, a reaction. And the stress is basically when you put ice cold water, obviously there is a reaction to that. And the blue uh, curve here represents the uh, predicted ISTI from the network model that we have developed. And the green one here is the true ISTI computed from various other signals that uh, we don't have access to I mean, in, in under normal conditions. And on the right-hand side, you have, and for the stress scenarios, you have the red curve that is the ground truth, and the blue one is the... Um, is the, uh, the one that's predicted. The bottom line is that the prediction accuracy is about 80%, so it's fairly accurate. You can see the curves match reasonably well. It's a non-invasive technique. And in terms of the accuracy of the stress scores themselves, compared to the state of the art, we are doing quite well. So the ISTA, which is used as the kind of the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the ground truth here, can predict the stress level approximately at about 90% accuracy, and we are about 85% accuracy. So we are, we are quite good uh, in terms of approaching whatever that can be done with, uh, with the original signal over there. Um, now we are jumping to something which is more based on the remote sense data. And again, this is a collaboration with people in remote sensing uh, uh, domain, particularly Dar Roberts from uh, the geography department at UCSB. And the problem here is to be able to accurately estimate uh, the uh, the uh, detect and localize uh, regions uh, where there is a high level of concentration of the methane gas. Uh, why is that a significant problem? Um, this is uh, uh, it's 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 well known fact that uh, methane is uh, it's contributing to the global warming and it's in fact close to 100 times more potent than the carbon dioxide that we mostly care about. It traps the heat very effectively. And where is this, uh, where, what are the sources of this one? So about a third of this comes from uh, dairy farms and, and livestock. Uh, a third of it comes from the oil and gas industry. And in just in California itself, I believe we have over a few hundred thousand uh, oil wells. And then uh, we also have maybe a few thousand of these uh, dairy farms. And then a, a partially the, about 15 to 20% of it comes from the landfill side. So, Methane contributes quite significantly to the overall uh, impact in terms of the climate change we are all experiencing. And again, the, uh, the objective here is to be able to accurately localize this information from remote sense data. In this particular context, the remote sensing data is coming from the multispectral imaging. In fact, most of the data is online. Uh, we essentially downloaded it from one of the NASA JPL sites. So you have a few hundred bands of this imaging data that's given to you. And what we would like to do is to identify regions within those aerial images where there is a high level of concentration of, uh, of the methane gas. So that's the, uh, the problem statement. And again, uh, uh, without getting into the details here, uh, uh, what we are seeing here is that on the left-hand side, uh, this is the ground truth data, so-called uh, ground truth data that is carefully curated by the human experts. And on the right-hand side is what that we could predict uh, based upon our uh, trained uh, machine learning models. So again, we are doing quite well uh, with regard to identifying those regions of interest. 
switching again. Uh, this is a project that we are collaborating with uh, a MARE group, which is the Marine Applied Research and Exploration, a nonprofit organization uh, that has underwater robots that go around capturing videos of the, of the sea surface and characterizing the various species quantitatively what are present uh, in, 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 in different regions of the, uh, the water. And what you typically have here is the robot has, has, has multiple sensors, one of them being the video sensor, and it is capturing the data. These are the laser pointers that are kind of identifying the depth of the scene. And as you can see, there are multiple uh, measurements that the camera is capturing, including how, how much below the water surface one is at, and, and obviously some other uh, geospatial localization information. And what you're interested in is in identifying those regions of interest. You probably may not be able to see these things clearly, uh, but there are multiple objects of interest. In this case, uh, vertebrates and invertebrates that, uh, that the researchers are interested in identifying. And again, you can imagine the complexity of this process if you were to watch hundreds and hundreds of hours of, hours of these videos and localize these, uh, these various instances of uh, animals that are present uh, in, in those waters and then count them, right? You can imagine how laborious and tedious that process is. And what we are trying to do here is to help them by developing models that can actually, again, put bounding boxes or localize those regions of interest accurately and also quantify the, uh, the information, associated information. And this is a project that one of my PhD students is working on uh, together with the mayor scientists, and this is work in progress. Moving on, um, another uh, very interesting and, and, and um, a, a very significant application domain uh, is on the healthcare side of things. What we are specifically looking at are various brain-related uh, diseases and other conditions. So in, in this particular example over here, uh, what we are looking at is to be able to um, uh, identify, localize uh, regions of the brain where, in, in this particular case, there's a brain tumor, uh, but there are other examples where you are looking for where there is swellings of the, um, the ventricles and so on. One of the nice things that has happened in this, again, this was a, uh, the PhD thesis of one of my former students, uh, Po Yu Kao, uh, who worked on integrating uh, different types of imaging information uh, in order to localize the, uh, the problem areas of interest. And something that we did probably for the first time um, in, in terms of the research problem here is that uh, there's, there's a wealth of data that's available uh, curated by the National Institutes of Health where you can actually look at the various connections in the brain at a very macro level. So uh, this, this is known as a connectome. So you have basically the bundles of neurons that are connecting different functional regions of the brain. So the primary contribution of this work here is to be able to fuse the structural information with the connectome, the so-called connectome, the connectivity information in order to, to come up with metrics that would better localize and identify different conditions. So we have multiple projects along this direction, uh, including being able to localize uh, uh, strokes uh, and, and also, as I mentioned before, uh, swellings of the ventricles and other problems of interest. And of course, something that is more current is uh, to be able to uh, to uh, predict, detect, and identify if um, if a particular uh, situation uh, is relating to the the current COVID nineteen pandemic. So in this particular case, uh, we all know how the the COVID nineteen these days are detected, right? You have biochemical markers that are somehow um, uh, amplified, and then 
you have those standardized tests and then you say a person has COVID or not. What we are looking at here is whether we can look at the chest X-rays, or the lung X-rays, and be able to classify, differentiate between whether a particular X-ray has viral pneumonia as opposed to COVID pneumonia. So this is a much more challenging problem as opposed to just saying that a person has pneumonia, which is a relatively easier problem. But differentiating between different types of viral pneumonia is going to be challenging. In particular, we want to distinguish between COVID-19 and viral pneumonia. And this is a project that's in collaboration with the uh, local cottage hospital and uh, UCSP. So I, I think I have given you a, a number of examples of uh, visual analysis problems. And if robust solutions can be found, that would um, obviously would be very helpful in terms of its societal impact and also driving the industry. And much of the current excitement, uh, of, at least uh, what, what is visible to the public, is driven by uh, the fact that uh, there is large big data sets that are available uh, that can facilitate um, developing robust solutions. And the real problem here is that it's not one of differentiating cats and dogs. Those are the examples that you might have seen very often in, in, in various computer vision talks. But in many of the science, science problems, including the ones that I have highlighted so far, the human expertise is very limited. Think of the, uh, the brain tumor case or the, um, the methane detection problem. There are very few people who can actually look at these kinds of data and actually make sense out of it. So it's not really scalable uh, with respect to human expertise. In addition, you probably do not have um, large amounts of data. You don't have millions and millions of images to work with. So you have very few images from which uh, the machine learning or AI solutions need to learn in order to provide uh, robust solutions. So this is a fairly challenging problem. Uh, before I get to that, we, let's, let's, since we are talking about human expertise here, uh, we are extremely good at seeing, right? So in fact, these are some of the quotes from well-known people here. So uh, the, actually, this is a very nice uh, short uh, re bedtime reading book that I would highly recommend. Uh, by Richard Gregory, I don't know whether it's still in print or not, uh, The Psychology of Seeing, and, and uh, I like this quote. We are so familiar with seeing that it takes a leap of imagination to realize that there are problems to be solved. So if you can get hold of this book, this is a great book to have and read. Uh, and vision is not an easy problem. So this is actually very challenging to explain to someone who's actually not really working on vision because we just open our eyes and we see things, right? But we know very little about how biological vision works. And and we, all we know is that the primary goal of vision was for survival, right? When, when the, the visual systems were evolving, the primary objective was to be able to be not uh, getting killed by the, the, the predators. And as I said, uh, human vision appears effortless. So we just open and see. But there are so many things that we do. We don't even think about that, that it's kind of challenging to, to recreate this in a computing system. So 
Uh, and again, going back to the previous slide, let me see if I can. So what you are seeing is the, 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 light, the patterns of electromagnetic energy, the light uh, in a, uh, that's falling onto the retina that's captured as patterns. But what we actually see are, when I look around, I see people, objects of interest, etc. whether it's for navigation or whatever task that we are interested in. So that transformation, going from images to something that you can work with, is a fairly difficult and challenging problem. And uh, uh, there are other more, more quotes here. Uh, in fact, both of them tried to kind of suggest that I could be more like an engineer device and how could it have evolved. And in fact, Darwin made this statement that the eye to this day gives me a cold shudder because it's very hard to explain how uh, the, the entire mechanism of the eye and the underlying visual system could have just evolved through evolution. So this is uh, he always thought that this was the weakest part of his argument about about evolution, and and it's not perfect either. And uh, not sure if the things are getting cut off on the screen. It is um, at least I noticed that it's being cut out. Um, so this is uh, so we have problems. There are illusions that happen. So in this particular case. Uh, the question is whether, I, I, if you can see the, the markings here, A and B, this is a well-known illusion. You can download it from the web. Um, the question is whether A is brighter or B is brighter. For most of us, we, the immediate reaction is to say that, yeah, of course, B is, appears brighter than A. In fact, we are getting fooled by the fact that there is the cylinder that's casting a shadow, and that makes B appear brighter than A. But if you are to actually get rid of the contextual information, or if you are able to download this picture and go to Photoshop and measure the intensity values, you would be surprised to find that A and B have identical values, intensity values. So, so, so we are easily, we, our eyes can be, or our visual system can be easily fooled, and I'll come back to this later on during my uh, presentation. So, just think about these things, why, why vision is hard. We have two images that are being formed from the light that's coming onto our, into our eyes, right? And getting projected onto the back of our eyes, the retina, right? So that's what, that's what the input is. What we are seeing is a three-dimensional world around us, which enables the, the information that's being processed, enables us to move around. And as we move around, we don't see that, uh, that the whole things are jumping up and down. Just contrast that with a, with a digital camera, right? If you have a head-mounted camera and walk around, watching that video would be very painful because things will be moving up and down all the time, right? So it's not, it's not very coherent. And, and, but that's not what's happening uh, when we see things. And we also don't see two images. These images are effortlessly fused. The left and right images are constantly fused for us to perceive the three-dimensional information. So, so even though there are two images, continuous in time, falling on the retina, that's what we see. And, and, and we don't see any significant perturbations. Of course, if there are problems with the visual system, that's when things will start happening, right? But in a normal scenario, that's exactly what we end up seeing. Now, when you uh, look at this picture over here, we, we make certain interpretations. There are two people. Uh, if you know the people, you might be able to recognize who they are. Uh, you can uh, consider, uh, in fact, detecting somehow, even though it's a still picture, uh, you can kind of, if you're aware of the context, you can say that, okay, they're holding the hands, maybe they're doing some, so that there are various activities that you can associate it with that. 
Uh, you also have the fact that maybe there's a ring here, a black jacket, and so on. So there's multiple interpretations that are possible just by looking at this image, right? But what is the computer looking at? The computer has the image of this uh, uh, in, in a digitized format, right, which is what I have in this PowerPoint slide, but the, basically it's a sequence of numbers, zeros and ones, and typically in the range 0 to 255. So that's how the computer looks at. So essentially, if you just contrast with this one, this picture and this numbers, this is what the input is. In, in, in a sense, uh, on the eyes or the retina, and that's the interpretation that you're deriving. So it's a fairly challenging and, and difficult problem. And, and computer vision has been around for about 50 plus years at this time. Until very recently, the classical approach to solving this problem is that you have images, and then we as researchers in computer vision engineer those features. What are the features that are of interest? Maybe color is important, texture is important, shape and motion, if you're talking about video, those are important things. So you compute those hand-engineered features, and then you develop some kind of pattern recognition, pattern classification methods that would then result in this categorization that says that you have cats, dogs, planes, trains, and so on. So that's been uh, what I would call classical or pre-2010 approach to various computer vision problems. However, uh, over the last 10 years, there has been a transformation, a significant transformation in terms of how these problems are uh, processed, or, or, or how this data is processed, thanks to the emergence of deep learning. Deep learning essentially is referring to a neural network architecture uh, which with multiple layers, the tens to hundreds of these different layers, where you have the input here and the output over there, where the output would be your, your inferences that I just talked about, input or the data sets, and the, the, the overall objective here is that instead of those hand-engineered features that you saw before, you let this network learn uh, how to process these images in order to get to the final conclusion. So in that sense, uh, it's primarily driven by a, uh, a large amount of data that one can have access to, uh, again, driven by the, uh, the revolutions in, in computing and uh, web and so on, uh, including the, the GPUs that have now become very expensive to, to use and, and uh, uh, collect. And, but, but then the nice thing is that over the past few years, you see many of the, the state-of-the-art results that are out there are because of these deep network architectures. And again, these network neural networks have been around for some time, even dating back to the 80s and 90s. Uh, what has changed is that you have lots of data, lots of computing power, and that has enabled very significant complex architectures uh, that enables you to make sense out of these images. If you have uh, lots of these data sets, you can learn from the data to get to the inferences that you're interested in. So that's been a transformative change. However, in the next few minutes, I would like to, just like the human vision system can be fooled easily by, the, um, by various illusions, uh, you do have problems here. And uh, for those of you who have been following what's happening in the self-driving uh, context, uh, there are some interesting, fun examples of how uh, cars are getting fooled by, in this particular, this, these are actually, I, I didn't make them up, these are actually uh, real uh, news stories. 
uh, in this particular case, the, uh, the autopilot was confused by uh, Burger King uh, ads on the, on the highways, thinking that those are stop or exit signs. So actually, you, you, the car would take those exits, right? So, uh, and in fact, this is probably an ad from Burger King <laughs> kind of capturing what was happening with the autopilots, and that's uh, uh, what they had on their website. And, and things like that can easily happen. In fact, it's, it's not at all difficult to, to do something like what I have in, the, in, the, um, in these images below. So you can train a good neural network classifier that can say that this is a ship with almost 100% confidence. And actually, these are all real examples that I, what I'm talking about. And then you, you can find this in the, in the published literature as well. This is a dog uh, image, and, and, and you can, again, uh, classify that with 100% uh, accuracy or close to 100% accuracy. However, I can take this Im these two images and, and present it in such a way such that with minor perturbations uh, and, and, and some kind of what we call adversarial uh, training, uh, uh, you could actually get this to be misclassified as a dog, and it's not difficult at all. And so, so essentially, what you have on the right-hand side, uh, if, if you don't do the training properly, the, the adversarial attack could take these two images and and make the perturbations on this image, the the image that was correctly classified, into this. No human would say that this is a picture of a dog, right? But now I can have the same machine learning system that was doing perfectly well. With, with, uh, okay, can, which can be fooled by the, um, the perturbations I have induced, now it thinks that it is a dog. Now you can think of context where this can be uh, pretty dangerous, particularly think of uh, the, the, the autopilots, right? Uh, if you can make a, a stop sign of look like a 50-mile zone, right? Imagine the consequences of those things. So, so it, depending on the context, these things, uh, while this is a fun example, it could be uh, pretty serious. Uh, here is another example. It's very easy to, to take pictures and manipulate them. So in this particular case, I have, uh, 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 we, we, we could have uh, Im uh, images that are generated uh, with uh, very little uh, knowledge about the underlying image processing or computer vision, where you have new images that are not at all realistic or, or at, it's not re not at all real, right? So in this particular case, I have erased some of the data sets. I can create new data sets that look very real. So here is another example where, um, uh, if I ask you, which one of the two images is real? It's very hard for a human observer to find out, right? So I have, in one case, uh, they are pretty much identical, except that if you can see the regions here, there seems to be something like a lake, and there's no lake here. And the question is, so one of them is synthesized, the other one is not. So which one is real? So that's, that's a tough question to answer for human observers. That's not saying that it's difficult for the computers to detect. So there are cases where some of these more challenging uh, problems for the humans uh, can be made quite easy for the computers and vice versa. So in this particular case, this is a fake image uh, that was the, the real image. So in closing, um, the, the, most, the thing that I emphasize often to my students is to is be clear about the problems that you are, are trying to solve. And even though there's been a lot of excitement over deep learning or AI and computer vision, much of the, the research in deep learning is driven by work in computer vision, there's really no magic. It's, it's the data that's driving uh, these methods. So, 
So your solutions, the data-driven solutions are going to be only as good as the data, the quality of the data um, that you're using to train those networks. And you have to be careful about all of the generalizations, examples of adversarial attacks that I mentioned before. And then there are lots of other things when it comes to AI and vision problem. We don't have time to get into those details. However, uh, the final slide is that there are lots of challenging, exciting, challenging opportunities with a fairly broad impact to society, health, medicine, quality of life, to sciences, the security, and so on. So it's, it's, it's probably the, the, the best time to be working on problems in computer vision and AI. And uh, often I get asked, what do I need to know in order to get into uh, problems working on uh, computer vision and uh, machine learning? And actually, I have now quite a few computer um, high school students who are working on various problems within my group. So what I would like to emphasize in terms of the basic training is that you need to know, basically, you're doing signal processing, right? So good uh, basic math and physics skills and signal processing skills are necessary uh, in this context. And of course, from the computer science point of view, how you organize the data, the, the associated data structures. And at the end of the day, you are developing software to, to work with the data. So that's also uh, quite important. And finally, having uh, at the end, you are looking at some specific applications in specific domains. So if you're getting deep into uh, the domain, obviously the domain expertise is very critical. Uh, in, in the last bu bullet here, here, the last statement here is that within our department, we are actually uh, right now undertaking a major uh, course overhaul to, uh, to introduce data science and signal processing topics uh, in the very first year, early on within the EE curriculum. So with that, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.